Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Seth Tortorici about his new book, Sins Against Nature, Sex and Archives in Colonial New Spain. This book was recently published by Duke University Press. Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's, um, it's an honor to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, Seth, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, you know, I've been teaching in the the Spanish and Portuguese languages and literatures department at NYU uh, for about seven years. Um, But I don't really have a a disciplinary training and background in literature or very much in literary theory. So I actually received my Ph.D. in the discipline of Latin American history um, from UCLA about, about eight years ago. Um, and my, my focus, my focus, uh, my, my interests sort of focus and revolve around the intersections of gender, the body, sexuality, uh, and questions of historical memory in Mexico, but also in, in colonial Latin America, but the Americas in a hemispheric sense at large. And I'm really interested in, in sort of bringing together some of the disciplinary and methodological interests that we see in history, in cultural studies, um, in LGBTQ studies, and other areas and disciplines to try to, to, you know, open up and expand the imaginative range and scope, I think, of colonial Latin American studies. So that's, that's you know, really sort of where I, I'm coming from. And um, I get the question a lot of how did I end up studying, you know, such a niche topic of, say, sodomy and bestiality in colonial Mexico. Um, you know, and I'll talk a little bit about this over the course of, of the interview. But just to say, I'm originally from Southern California. I um, was very interested in Spanish and had several Mexican friends growing up. And as an undergrad, I studied abroad at the National University of Mexico, uh, UNAM. And that was really my first introduction to to Mexican history and colonial Latin American history. And it was really sort of through that experience that, um, you know, little by little, my interests turned and shifted toward the colonial period, toward um, the history of colonialism and colonial encounter. And it was really sort of uh, absolutely linked to my own education, pedagogical experiences and my sort of upbringing in Southern California that unbeknownst to me, you know, decades ago, kind of slightly directed my interests in a particular fashion. So, um, so yeah, here I am teaching at NYU. And, um, you know, again, thank you so much for, for reading the book. And, and I very much look forward to the conversation. No, thank you. And um, let's start talking about the book. Can you please tell us why did you decide to write Sins Against Nature? How did you come up with the idea of exploring the relationship between sex archives and the writing of history for this particular book? Yeah, um, wonderful question. And it's an answer that um, it, 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 it'll take a little while to get through in part because, you know, as, as many of us know, when you're working on a book, especially if it's the first book project, it's years, if not decades in the making. Um, so, so I guess what I would like to share and in just a couple of minutes are, are the, the different um, iterations or different stages that this project went through to sort of turn into the thing it, it turned into um, when it was published last year. So I started my history PhD at UCLA around 2002, and I knew I was interested in some combination of the intersections between gender, sexuality, colonialism, Mexico, um, the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but I had yet to sort of locate a corpus of cases or a theme or a set of texts. 
Um, the first couple of summers I was in grad school, I went to archives, you know, the, the Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico City or to um, other municipal archives in places like Michoacán, um, Oaxaca, really kind of looking for a topic. And one of the things I noticed was that there was so little uh, back in the early 2000s and the late 1990s, there was so little scholarship on the history of what we today would call homosexuality. Um, you know, a French historian named Serge Grzynski published a fabulous article called uh, Las, Las Cenizas del Deseo, um, The Ashes of Desire, I, I, I forget the subtitle, but Homosexuality, uh, something, something in colonial Mexico. And that was really the only article that existed for the field of colonial Mexico, um, you know, 15 years ago. And this was surprising because for other geographic places like early modern Europe, you already had, you know, massive books and, and very uh, you know, sustained studies and historiographical inquiries into these sorts of topics. So I didn't really understand why for colonial Latin America, by and large, as a whole, there was nothing written on same-sex desire, homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera. So my initial idea was, okay, great, I'll go to the archives, go to the National Archives, find all of the sodomy cases, uh, sins against nature cases, write my dissertation, and, and that's it. And, you know, one of the things that, that sort of forced me to reconsider my own uh, sort of my own preconceived notions about gender and sexuality and desire in the past was the fact that I had already set up blinders in my own mind. Like I was interested in this particular topic, same-sex desire, knowing that the term homosexuality was not even invented until, you know, the 1870s. So I'm researching a topic and a theme that conceptually did not quite exist in the way that we understand it to exist today. So when I was going into colonial uh, Mexican archives looking for traces, archival traces of male male desire or female female desire, yeah. So as I as I um, was entering colonial Mexican archives looking for traces of female female same sex desire or male male same sex desire, I would look for terms like sodomia, pecado nefando, uh, pecado contra natura, and you know these are sodomy nefarious sin, sins against nature, which would refer to homosexuality. And I was surprised that most of the cases I was finding were dealing with human-animal interactions or criminal cases of bestiality. And initially, I was just ignoring all of these. You know, I would, I would, I would find a 150-page criminal trial called, you know, uh, Caso Criminal Contra Pedro Bravo por el Pecado Nefando. Uh, you know, against a criminal trial against Pedro Bravo for the nefarious sin, I would think it was going to be a case of male-male homosexuality or desire. And I would open it and it was like, oh, it's a case dealing with a domesticated farm animal. And, you know, again, I was excluding these things. And about two years into the process, after encountering hundreds of criminal trials of bestiality that historians had previously ignored, I really had to force myself to think through, why am I also ignoring this? Why am I discarding this? Why am I sort of excluding that which doesn't fit the story that I want to tell? Um, so that was really the first big conceptual shift, was moving away from homosexuality, you know, in, in quotes, or same-sex desire, to this broader conceptual category um, that was used in the, in, you know, in the contemporaneous period of the sins against nature, which is a, this sort of conceptual umbrella term that allows us to bring together and relate the way ecclesiastical and criminal authorities did these, these three acts, by and large sodomy, bestiality, and masturbation, um, which were deemed to be against na nature because they did not um, result in procreation. Um, so that was kind of the dissertation to focus on the sins against nature. And just very briefly, um, it took me it took me several years to tr uh, to revise the dissertation into a book, in part because I realized along the way that I wanted to speak to a much wider disciplinary and interdisciplinary audience than simply to historians of colonial Latin American, uh, you know, colonial Latin America. Um, and it was really this this challenge to, to think about how to reach out to readers in queer studies and memory studies and cultural studies and literary theory, as well as in history um, and LGBTQ studies, activism, et cetera, 
And, you know, my interests in the politics of archives and the politics of, of memory and the politics of, the des of desire in the past and in the present are really what sort of led me little by little to focus simultaneously on um, what happened in the historical past, but also on how those bodies and desires come to be documented and archived in the very first place. And this is really, really what the, the book itself is about. It's, you know, I think it's a careful historical study of the sins against nature as well as their regulation in the colonial Mexican past from the 1530s to the 1820s. But uh, more conceptually and methodologically, it's an exploration of how bodies and desires come to be documented, recorded, written down, in the very first place in, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, how they come to be classified, uh, taxonomized, um, categorized and understood in the language and terminology of the day, in the language and classifications of the notaries, the scribes, um, the escribanos, and in the language of the archival systems of classification that in the historical past. Um, they were ordered under, and then as we move into the 19th and 20th centuries, then again get reordered and reincorporated uh, into a, you know something that we today will call the national archive, or a local state archive, or a municipal, or criminal, or notarial, or ecclesiastical archive. So um, in that sense, the book has been uh, has been a lot of fun, and it sort of espouses what I would like to call, in some ways, a speculative methodology to think about chains. Of of, of effective reactions and emotions and visceral reactions from the historical past up to the present um, that in many ways in, in, incorporates us, the readers and the writers and the archive users as well. So that was a, a, a long-winded answer to your uh, really good question, but uh, thank you so much. No, thank you, because you're already uh, touching upon some of the points uh, I would like to have uh, to discuss with you in this conversation. And one, uh, one of the questions I want to start with is about two elements that are constantly present on your analysis, analysis and that's language and classification. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about the interpretations that can be made about the way language was used to describe and classify the desire and sexuality at the time? And what were or are the challenges archivists and historians face when dealing with cases like the ones you studied? Yeah, so thank you very much for that very good question, um, which I think in many ways gets to the to the heart and the core of, of this project, right? So much of it is is looking at at language and how bodies and desires come to be understood, described, represented in the archival documents. Um, but, but really what I'm, what I'm getting at in this project is trying to move away from, I think, binary understandings of colonial society or top-down understandings of colonial society, which in, in so many ways intersect with this question of language and of classification. Um, so as a historian, one of the things that struck me years ago when I was reading were assertions um, and, and what I see as, as, as somewhat blanket or essentializing assertions uh, where, where some scholars will say things like, you know, for colonial Latin America, sodomy was the, the most despised and most horrendous of all crimes, punishable by death, abhorred by authorities, you know, and in reality, Sodomy or any criminal, any crime or any sort of criminal act or sinful act uh, depended entirely on the particulars of the individuals um, that were performing that very act and on the, the sort of social dynamics of all of the actors and actresses that are involved in that um, particular encounter. Um, so to give an example, you know, sodomy in and of itself is not the worst sin of colonial Latin America. It is if it is, if it is um, being performed or enacted or embodied, for example, by individuals deemed of a lower social uh, or socioeconomic status or class, such as indigenous individuals or mixed race peoples or mulatos, um, black individuals or individuals who had African um, uh, descendants. You have several other cases. Um, I mean, I mean, 
hundreds of cases that show that sodomy in and of itself, you know, especially among certain elite segments of society or among Catholic priests was not punishable um, in the ways it was uh, when it was indigenous subjects or, or mixed race or, or black subjects performing these, these particular acts. Um, and all of these, I think, these questions of race and of gender and of, of, of class and social, social status relate entirely to language and to the types of language and terms that are available to the individuals that we're speaking of. All right. Um, one of the things that comes up and is so salient in so many of the criminal and inquisition trials that I look at are the ways that individuals, both women and men, are using particular terms to describe their bodies, their desires and the desires and acts of others. And you see this tension oftentimes come up in several of the cases. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about not just what happened in the historical past, but in the actual case file itself, which is a composite document that comes together sometimes over the course of many years with the hands and pages and writings of several different scribes. But again, in all of these documents or in so many of the documents, you see a tension between colloquial everyday terms and language and formulaic terms and, and concepts that are used to represent the body or represent desire. Um, just to give a couple of examples, you'll find individuals who are discussing um, sex between two men as the, the pecado nefando abominable contra el deseo de Dios, right? Or the, the nefarious, abominable sin against God's desires and will. Um, and other people will refer to the act of sodomy simply as, as two, two put so right here you have you have this this fascinating tension between formulaic terms like nefarious sin, sodomy against nature, and colloquial terms such as 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 puto or as um, you know boca encima, boca abajo, um, to refer to the physical positions that people are um, in when they're they're seen engaging in these acts, and and this again, goes to the very heart of how things do or do not enter the archives. Um, it's so common in denunciations to find formulaic language being introduced into the, the voice of the speaker. Um, and we know this, for example, when we have uh, a, an indigenous language um, speaking subject, or for example, a young Nahuatl boy who's 10 or 11 years old, who sees two men committing an act of sodomy. And in the transcripts of the criminal trial, it, there are several moments of mediation and abstraction that take place. First, because the original Nahuatl that this boy would have spoken to authorities is not recorded in the criminal trial. Um, it's missing, and all we have is a brief reference to the fact that his testimony was translated from Nahuatl to Castellano or to Spanish by a court-appointed interpreter, and then it will say things like, like the young, you know, 10-year-old servant said that he saw two men committing the nefarious sin against nature that, that uh, is against the church and against the will of God. That the, and, and, you know, we really have to think, is this what a 10-year-old boy would have said and how he um, or she would have described the things that they just saw? It's very unlikely. And we can sort of juxtapose this again with other types of words and terms that come into um, the, the, the archives. So I could continue talking about, about language um, a lot more. But this relates essentially to questions of classification in the archives. Um, and this is a theme that I explore in, in each and every one of the chapters of the book are how, how certain acts and desires are rendered visible within the colonial archives and also occluded and hidden within the archives. And um, I, so somebody, yeah, sorry, sorry. You know, excuse me, excuse me. I, I just uh, was thinking that we will keep talking about language and in the next a question, particularly about when things are not named as such yet. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about one of the cases that you explore regarding necrophilia and how the language there was missing. So just to give some context to the listeners, in Sins Against Nature, you explored four major teams, the visceral, the human, the animal, and the divine. When talking about viscerality in the archives, you 
it tells the reader about the chain of visceral reactions in which a lot of people uh, is involved throughout the time. From those performing sex acts, the colonial authorities, notaries, archivists, historians, your reader, and maybe now our listeners are going to be part of, of this chain. Uh, how do cases like the one you explored that I already introduced, the one uh, about necrophilia, affect the ways documents are encountered, studied? And what was the role of your own emotional reaction when writing the book? Yeah, um, so, so great question. I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first part first. Um, so to talk a little bit uh, very briefly about this, um, this is an 1810 criminal trial against a man named Jose Lázaro Martínez. Um, and what, what it, for me is, was so interesting in terms of writing the book and in terms of methodology and, and thinking through this project is that this particular case of necrophilia was something that I encountered years after I thought I was already done with the research for the book. Um, and this, I think, again, gets to the core of some of these methodological problems or issues that are at stake in doing any type of historical research. So as with the term homosexuality, which is not invented until the 1870s, you know, I, I, I was researching other topics um, for which there are also not proper terms prior to the 18th century. Um, one of those topics, which I've written and published about a little bit, is the history of attitudes towards death and dying and mortality, and particularly attitudes towards suicide. Um, suicide is a topic and a, uh, a theme that, pri you know, especially for the early modern context, you can't go into archives and simply type the word in Spanish, suicidio, and expect to come up with, with a bunch of hits in the archives. Again, because the term is chronologically later than the dates that we would be researching them for. So for the topic, as I was researching this, this, this theme of suicide, I looked for the word suicidio, but I also looked for other, um, you know, related terms and, and concepts, one of them being cadaver. Um, and I did this because oftentimes uh, the bodies of individuals who had committed suicide are denied church burials. And I thought, okay, if I type the word cadaver or body or corpse into the archives finding aids, maybe this will indirectly lead me to cases relating to, to this topic. So I typed the word uh, cadaver in Spanish, and there were almost no interesting hits, and I thought I had, I had hit a dead end, but there was this one reference that, that stood out, and it basically said, you know, the year 1810, the accused is José Lázaro Martínez, and the crime in Spanish, in the language of the archival uh, catalog, it simply said profanación de cadáver which is profanation of a cadaver. And for me, I literally had no idea what that referred to. I thought maybe this is somehow relates to a case of suicide or to a, a body being profaned prior to or after entering um, sacred ground. And I was absolutely blown away it, the, that day in the archives when I requested this, this giant tome of criminal trials opened to the particular page and instead of reading what the archivist had had classified as a case of profanation of cadaver, instead I saw on the title page of the criminal trial that the crime was named in 1810. Um, it basically said, El año México 1810, caso criminal contra José por haberse encontrado mezclando carnamente con una difunta. And the, the translation is against José Lázaro Martínez for having been caught carnally mixing with uh, a dead woman. And it was this disjuncture um, about three or four years ago that it was the first time it really made me think about this, um, what I term in the book, a visceral chain of reactions. And my argument is that... Um, yeah, so, so this is really what I'm trying to do um, in this particular chapter is point to what I call a visceral chain of reactions that, that speaks to the largely unarchivable and unclassifiable um, visceral reactions of historical actors in the past 
archivists in the recent uh, in the recent past and us as archive users, readers, um, and even listeners of this program in the present. And just to give a, a slightly more specific example, so so the example is sort of a, a more concrete example that I would like to give is, you know, in this particular 1810 uh, criminal trial, um, which to us, it looks like a case of necrophilia. It begins when two women enter a graveyard to pay respects to, to one of the women's aunts who had previously passed away, and they encounter this spectacle of a man, according to them, moving on top of the body that left little doubt as to what this man was doing, end quote. And the two women unexpectedly scream. They, they shriek in a state of, of shock and discomfort. And it's this scream that I argue in the book is what sets in chain, excuse me, sets in motion a chain of reactions. The scream of the alerts the resident who runs out and captures this individual, Jose Lázaro Martinez, turns him into criminal authorities who also um, register their visceral reactions in the, the context of the criminal trial as they're trying to make sense of the acts and trying to determine what is the adequate punishment for this crime. Um, they know it's bad um, to have sex with a corpse, but there's almost no legal precedence in terms of what punishment should be meted out for this act. And there's an unintelligibility in terms of the act in and of itself, in that the word necrophilia has not been um, been disseminated yet as a cultural concept. Um, so I think you know this type of of case really gets the heart of several of the, um, uh, the the phenomena that I'm looking at in the book, are thinking about how emotions and affects are documented, recorded, or escape from the documentary processes, and how they do filter up into the presence. Um, in, in, in involving ourselves as well, you know, and I, I had mentioned that the second part of your question was really about my own affects in the archives and, you know, it's, it's, they're all over the spectrum, uh, over the course of the many years of researching this book, you know, sometimes, and I'm sure as you know, as a historian, sometimes you find a document and you're, you're extremely excited and you're thrilled and you're, you're, uh, you're, 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 you're you're so encouraged at having found evidence or proof or, or some story, but the actual story itself may be one of, of, uh, of suffering or maybe one that involves, you know, in the case of the sodomites I'm looking at that are being punished sometimes and sometimes executed or publicly punished. So this, I think creates a, a conflicted effective relationship and, and reaction to to the, the archive subjects uh, that we find in, in the archives themselves. So, yeah, I, I say a lot more about this in the book, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. Okay. Um, in Chapter 4, uh, you explore a topic that you already mentioned in this conversation. That uh, It's this topic that we do not find frequently in historical analysis about sexuality, even when, as you prove, there are enough cases in the archives to study it. Um, we are talking about bestiality during the colonial era. Can mm. you tell us more about animal erasure, both physically at the time and as part of historical accounts? Yes, absolutely. So um, I had briefly mentioned, uh, you know, at the outset of this interview that bestiality was not a topic I was initially interested in. And it was something that, that came to me sideways in the sense that I unexpectedly encountered initially several and then dozens and then 100, 150 criminal cases of bestiality. Um, so, so oddly, this is, this is an act that is far more common in rural societies than I think most people are accustomed to or are willing to acknowledge. And we see this in the, in the present as well as in the historical past. Um, this is a, a crime that is, in, at least in the colonial period, functions in extremely paradoxical ways. And, and let me sort of say why that is. Um, if you look at the evidence in the criminal trials and the cases, most of the cases appear to involve indigenous um, suspects. Most of the time, young indigenous males, adolescent males who are, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, who live in rural um, areas or are, are sheep herders or, um, you know, pastoral farmers, etc., 
who are out in the fields or in the pastures for weeks, if not months at a, on, at a, at a time. So you have archival evidence that, that deals with this. And then you have, you have uh, Spanish tropes about the acts and Spaniards constantly trying to explain the crime and the act of bestiality as if it is something inherently indigenous, right? It's something that native peoples do because, of they, that they, because they are indigenous. And because they are close to nature, because they are less, you know, according to the to the rhetoric of the Spaniard, Spanish colonizers, less civilized, et cetera, et cetera. But the paradox here is that every one of the bestiality trials that we look at deals with a European domesticated animal and not with animals that are autochthonous to the Americas. So this is a crime or, or a, an, an act that in and of itself is conditioned by and through the historical evolution of colonialism in the Americas and Spanish rhetoric that, um, you know, peoples, they other in race uh, especially are most guilty of this act it, it, it absolutely flies in the face of actual historical evidence so so there's there's this the, the the trope of bestiality or the sins against nature and how that operates on the one hand and then there's the question of, of the human animal divide and what you just pointed to in your question about animal erasure um, there is another interesting contradiction, well, not necessarily a contradiction, but a point of comparison between sodomy cases and bestiality cases, whereby colonial authorities in Mexico are constantly going back to a biblical logic. And this is an Old Testament biblical logic that says, if man lies with another man, they should both be put to death. Or if a woman lies with a woman, they shall both be put to death. Or if man lies with an animal, they shall both be put to death. In practice, all of these these acts and how they're dealt with are are entirely dependent on local historical factors and local specificities. So for the case of colonial Mexico, in the 150 or so bestiality cases I look at, almost none of the humans are, are executed for their crimes. But instead, all, almost all of the animals are put to death. And they are put to death not because they're being seen as a guilty party in this crime or in this act, but rather because there are all sorts of anxieties, cultural anxieties and social anxieties that, that rise up around the body of the animal in question and its polluted or its defiled nature. So in many ways, the, 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 the physical body of the animal becomes the embodiment of the sin and of the unnatural act that needs to be symbolically and physically eradicated in order to destroy the memory of the sin. Um, so again, I think, I think the animals are being, are being um, physically killed. They're being sometimes ritualistically killed, oftentimes by the hand of the young adolescent boy who committed the crime in the very first place. And again, colonial authorities sometimes stipulate this in the punishments. Um, but, you know, this is one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated with throughout the book, the ways that certain bodies or objects or texts are imbued with memory and with a certain symbolic memory. And we see this very much in the case of, of, uh, bestiality trials in the colonial period, where again, the animals are being eradicated so as to symbolically destroy the memory of the crime. Um, there is an aspect that I, I think it also comes in, in the book often, particularly when you talk about uh, sodomy and bestiality and it's voyeurism. The act that somebody's seeing mm -hmm. as, as part of the construction of these cases for the colonial authorities but also what I want you to talk about the meanings of voyeurism in constructing the cases, but also as historians looking at something, and I think you have a, a really interesting quote, documents that are not intended for our eyes originally. Yeah, no, I, it's a great question. And so, so this is one of the other um, themes that comes up a lot in the book. And it's a theme that I hope allows me to kind of trace these points of connection between the colonial past and the presence. Um, and the argument that I'm trying to make is that is that 
you know, historians, and it's it's not an argument that is is uh, it's it's not an argument that I have invented. I wouldn't say. Um, several scholars and historians have have pointed out the fact that historians in any field of history are constantly looking at and accessing material that was never produced for their eyes, right? So there is already a sort of mechanism of voyeurism that is is key and and central to the very discipline of history, right? Um, I see several points of connection in that the implications of looking alter or shift radically depending on the conditions and particulars of the the, the specific act of watching. Um, and, and I'll just give one or two examples. But there are several cases I look at in the book whereby a young adolescent uh, witness, almost almost always a, a young male, will will stumble across a scene either in a pasture or in a temascal, which is like a, a sort of ritualistic steam bath or in um, in an obraje or a textile mill. And this young individual will say, well, I, I heard what I thought was a man in a sex went to go investigate. And what I saw instead was was a man and a man. And because of the implications of this act of viewing, decided that they needed to report the crime to a local, um, you know, either a civil servant or an alcalde or a representative of colonial authority. Um, and this is fascinating to me to think about, because had many of these these initial witnesses encountered a spectacle that was more pleasing to them voyeuristically um, in, in their own words or in their own desires, say a spectacle of a man and a woman committing committing some type of carnal act, then most likely the implications of that act of voyeurism would have stopped there. Right. This this act would not have circulated in a criminal framework to wider colonial society at large. But again, the the thing that that gets observed determines in part the ways that the viewer then reports or relates or disseminates information about that act to a wider sphere. And again, I think I think voyeurism on the part of historical um, actors implicates us because Again, it's these these very chains of documenting and recording that begin with a moment of, of voyeurism or a moment of somebody looking at a spectacle um, that they are not initially invited to be a part of and then producing and conveying information and disseminating information to another sector or segment of, of the colonial population. And again, it is this that sets in chain um, the very processes of documenting and recording and allows certain acts and certain individuals to become remembered as something we today call history, right? And very much implicates us as well. And, you know, I think, I think for the history of sexuality as a field, um, you know, I, I don't think that, that historians need to shy away from some of the more explicit components or, or, um, documentations of desire in the past. And I, I think it's really worthwhile to kind of delve into and, and, and get lost a little bit in the language and in sort of the, the, the richness and the, the ethno-historical material and wealth of those, those details that come up in, in um, the cases themselves, right? So, so I, for one, am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm critical of the mechanisms of historical voyeurism, but also cognizant of the fact that we ourselves produce those conditions at the very same time that we're critical of them. So I, I, I think, we, you know, we as historians, and especially historians of sexuality, um, have to acknowledge that we participate in these very processes while at the same time can and should be critical and analytical of those processes and their historical, um, you know, their historical specificities. In this conversation, as you do in the book, uh, you talk often about these connections between the present and the past. And I must confess that one of the most striking chapters in regards to that connection is the chapter where you talk about the sexual abuse committed by priests against boys and men during the colonial era. And it might sound naive, but it was like really, really striking how similar the interactions were at the time. Yeah. Uh, 
You have called this corpus of documents the archives of neg negligence. It might mm -hmm. seem uh, obvious, but I would like uh, you to explain us why did you choose that name? And what do this information tell us about the unique relationships of power in colonial Mexico? Yeah, so this is a great question. And um, you're referring specifically to a chapter, I think it's chapter five in the book, that yes. is looking at, um, it's titled Archives of Negligence, Solicitation in the Confessional. And this chapter really came together um, in parts uh, as a way to address the fact that there had been very good studies for the um, Iberian Atlantic world, studies of solicitation in the confessional. And solicitation refers to, in this, in this context, it specifically refers to the solicitation of a sexual act or a sexual favor by a Catholic priest of one of his parishioners, either a male or a female parishioner. Most of the historical studies of solicitation, for whatever reason, um, limit themselves to to female um, uh, either victims or participants of of uh, you know recipients of of this this priestly solicitation. When you delve into the archives, you see that that the the subjects um, of the of, of solicitation are are far more diverse. A uh, vast majority are women, but but boys and adolescents and men are also involved. So what this chapter is trying to do is look at um, you know, look at a corpus of Inquisition trials whereby priests are getting in trouble for soliciting either um, boys, adolescent males, or men, or men and women in the confessional. So, so it's it's solicitation that is kind of uh, pulled pulled into the charge of of the unnatural. All right, and and one of the things, as I think you point out really nicely in your question that becomes very clear early on when you're dealing with the archives of the Catholic Church are the ways in which the church itself has historically dealt with the topic and, and the issues and problems of both priestly celibacy and sexual abuse by, by um, particular members of the clergy. And it's, you know, for me, as somebody who was raised Catholic and is, is no longer religious, um, it's, it's phenomenally frustrating to see that's exactly as you point out in your in your question. Um, these these strategies on the part of of bishops and sometimes the pope and sometimes you know higher uh, uh, members of the Catholic clergy. These these strategies to uh, to hide and to occlude cases of priestly abuse, and we see that the strategies in place today that are constantly coming to light in places like California, Philadelphia, Chicago, um, you know, Ireland, so many parts of, of the world, um, the strategies of simply moving an abusive priest from one parish to another parish to another parish is the same thing that happened in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s. Um, there is ample documentation, archival documentation of priestly abuse but what we see the documentation pointing to more often than not are uh, priests getting away with it and getting a slap on the wrist for extremely egregious offenses, um, whereby laypersons accused of the very same crimes were being publicly punished, publicly whipped or executed for those for those acts. Um, and the final thing I'll say about this this chapter is that you can really trace the ways that the Catholic Church is systematically placing its own interest and it's the evangelization interests uh, very much above the interests of indigenous peoples and indigenous parishioners. And you can trace this through several cases um, whereby, you know, a Catholic priest who's fluent in two or three indigenous Mexican languages um, will be viewed as extremely important because of his ability to translate the tenets of Catholicism into Nahuatl and Purépecha and Mixtec or Otomi. Um, and certain priests will have denunciations roll in over the course of several decades all throughout Mexico and Guatemala. And sometimes it takes decades for the Catholic Church or for the Inquisition to treat seriously this crime or to even uh, deal with it as, as if it were a serious issue. And even in most of those cases, I'm thinking of one priest in particular that I, that I talk about and discuss in, in chapter five of the book, you know, a priest who over the course of 20 years 
is is not only denounced for sexually abusing men and women in the confessional, but he admits to doing this and doing this in indigenous multiple indigenous languages. The Catholic Church or the Inquisition, more specifically, punishes him by saying that he can uh, no longer um, administer the sacrament of confession to indigenous peoples. And it seems like this would be the end of the story, except there's a, 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 an addendum in the archival file in the Inquisition case from some 10 or 12 years later that basically says because the priest is now older and he, the passions of desire have long since been extinguished, and because we need priests who speak these languages, these indigenous languages, um, to proselytize and evangelize in these areas, we're going to reinstate his right to administer confession to indigenous peoples. And this is one of several cases whereby it's, it, it becomes very clear that the Catholic Church, um, and I'm not trying to be simplistic or facile, I'm not saying the Catholic Church does not worry about the well-being of its parishioners, but systematically and transhistorically, when we look over time, um, the strategies that the Catholic Church has historically used over the course of the 20th and 20, you know, the first part of the 21st centuries to hide priestly abuse and their own, um, we can trace very carefully and in our in a in a nuanced way, you know, back to the 15-1600s and much earlier, as uh, medieval historians have done. And for your last chapter, you analyzed a sexual act that, unlike the others you have explained in this conversation and in your book, had to do more with thoughts, privacy, solitude. Specifically, you wrote about masturbation and the desire or fantasies provoked by religious images. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments you made in these pages is that, and I quote, pollution encompassed much more than masturbation and that women too fell into pollution. Can you explain pollution as a concept and what are the gender implications of it? Yeah, yeah. So um, as I as I mentioned kind of earlier in this conversation, you know, the, 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 the concept and construct of pecado contra natura or the sins against nature um, are basically three things three acts, and it's sodomy, bestiality, and masturbation. Depending on the theologian or authority in question, other acts may or may not be included in this, you know, sins against nature. Um, but the term masturbation as a concept and a linguistic term is in and of itself an 18th century construct as well. What we have prior to the 18th century is the word pollution in Spanish or pollution in English which refers to um, emissions, uh, seminal emissions, not only on the part of men, but either by men or women. So both women and men can be found guilty of the crime of pollution. Um, pollution for the medieval time period, for the early modern time period, can be either voluntary or involuntary. Um, so, so there's ample writing and theological discussion of pollution as a concept and as a, as a, as a sin. Um, for this time period. Pollucion, as it enters the colonial uh, archives of Mexico, is very difficult to trace out because masturbation is really very low on the hierarchy of sins in terms of uh, what authorities, you know, ecclesiastical authorities are looking to punish. Um, so if you read confessional manuals, and these are sort of how-to guides for priests to administer confession to their parishioners in indigenous languages in Mexico, questions related to masturbation or to pollution are always uh, very central and very key. In reality, you find very few, if, if any, individuals in colonial Latin America getting in trouble simply for the act of masturbation. What we find instead, and this is really what I'm looking at in this chapter, are individuals whose acts of pollution or, or masturbation accompany religious um, heretical beliefs or blasphemous statements. And this is really what, what uh, the church is concerned with and what the Holy Office of the Inquisition is concerned with. They are not regulating when and where and how individuals are masturbating or touching themselves. Um, in contrast or in comparison, they are concerned with 
unorthodox beliefs or statements that accompany these types of bodily acts or sinful sinful acts. So we find cases like that of the 1621 Inquisition trial of a, a young mestiza woman from Puebla uh, named Agustina Ruiz, who confessed to um, her priest in, in the early 1620s that she was, for example, having sex and engaging in, in pollutions with Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and um, several Catholic saints. So again, the Inquisition is, is interested and concerned uh, in, in her case, not because of the act of masturbation, but rather because this is an individual who incorrectly believes that they are physically and effectively engaging with Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the saints. And this is, this is unorthodox. And this is or has the potential to be a heretical belief if she is not set right in her, her ways and in her thoughts. Um, so this chapter incorporates several cases like this of individuals who fantasize, desire Jesus, the Virgin, the saints, religious objects in ways that complicate our understanding of how the church deals with sexuality and um, elicits or quote unquote unnatural sexuality in the past. Um, and by and large, it's for me, it was fascinating because you find several acts that for me uh, or for us as readers in 2017, 2018, seem to be extremely egregious. And Catholic priests oftentimes don't seem to be uh, all that concerned about them. So, for example, individuals who are caught or who denounce themselves for masturbating with the Holy Eucharist or things like this. And the church is, is less concerned, or the, the, excuse me, the, the, the Inquisition is less concerned with punishing these individuals and more concerned with making sure that they see the errors of their ways, they recognize the sinfulness of their previous beliefs, and that they, they correct um, themselves and their actions for the future. So that's really what this chapter um, is, is looking at. And you're right, there are very clearly gendered implications in terms of the concept of pollution, by and large because of the institutionalized, uh, very long historically institutionalized misogyny on the part of the Catholic Church and on Catholic theologians who have historically framed women as being more easily... Um, uh, affected or afflicted by sin, um, more easily pollutable than men, right? So already uh, the concept of pollution is gendered and has highly gendered implications. And you see this when you look at the, the descriptive literature, the, the prescriptive literature, the confessional manuals, theolog theolo theological treatises, etc. Um, well, you have obviously tracked down dozens, probably hundreds of documents, and you have classified them. Could you tell our listeners uh, a little bit more about this project you have online about the archival appendix uh, of these cases that you have uh, on the NYU website, if I am correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, so there's... Um, one of the things I wanted to do with this project is is open it up for future scholars and researchers to do something radically different with the very same sources that I looked at. Um, I love collaborative scholarship. I, I dedicate a lot of my own intellectual efforts to um, to bringing together scholars from different geographic and, and historiographical interests and disciplines. And I really see this as another component or sort of another aspect of that type of work. Um, so I, I uploaded, uh, basically a, a PDF file that's several dozen pages, maybe 60, 60 or so pages that has, you know, roughly 320 of the 327 criminal and inquisition trials I looked at and basically gives a brief synopsis of, of all of the particulars of the case in question. It gives the year, the locale, the names of the individuals involved, and most importantly, the archival reference and classification for other scholars to go on and, and access these documents. Um, and again, I did this in part because I don't see it by any means my book as a definitive study on the sins against nature in colonial Mexico. I see it as, as a sort of initial 
exploration and really a tip, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of the types of scholarship that could be done with this corpus of cases. And I really hope younger, you know, other scholars, younger scholars take this and run with it and, and challenge my findings and do something radically different with, you know, whether it's micro history or macro history or expand that database and find other archives and other cases, um, and, and, you know, really, that's, that's kind of the idea. And I, I will say, so, somewhat to my chagrin, my idea of the digital archive initially was, was far more developed. And, and, you know, in my mind, I had this idea of like a digital, digital map with, you know, where you could, you could click on each, each dot and it would open up, you know, photographs of the archival documents that I was able to access. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 very time consuming and and I think d digital archiving projects are fabulous and I think uh, at a kind of late stage in the process I realized how it would just simply not be feasible to do the type of digital project archiving project that I really wanted to do for this first book and this is something that I'm now from a very early stage looking to do with my second book project um, is working on a digital archive and digital maps. Um, that allow me to do something very different and more extensive and more, more expansive um, with that project. So I'm happy to talk about that if, if I'm, you're interested as well. Yeah, sure. I don't, I don't want to finish this conversation without asking you what are you working on now? What are your next projects? Uh, what's in your creative mind? Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Um, so in many ways, and I'm sure it's, it's the same with your scholarship and with, with so many of us who do research, it's, you know, the things that you find in, in unintended ways as you're researching your first project, you know, they basically sow the seeds for your second projects, uh, second and third and future projects. So, so one of the things with the, with the Sins Against Nature book projects I began to pay attention to were, again, as you pointed out very early on in this conversation, the language of classification. And I began to pay attention to the ways that the word obscene and the word obscenity were being used in some of the documents for the colonial period I had uncovered. And this really got me thinking, you know, how is... Um, for example, I'm thinking of, of a, 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 a 17th century Inquisition case against an individual who is who is recorded in the language of the archival documentation as being punished for having thought about the Virgin Mary and actos obscenos, or thinking about the Virgin Mary, quote, in obscene acts, end quote. So anyway, I'm not going to go into the details of this case here, but just to say that, that you know, the concept of obscenity is historically specific, is malleable, is shifting um, radically depending on specificity, local historical context and factors. And so my second book project is really thinking about what I'm calling archives of the obscene to think about how do historical definitions of obscenity shift over time from the 1700s up to the 1950s, depending on the technology of the recording devices. So I'm interested in looking at in the first chapter, how the Holy Office of the Inquisition um, defines obscenity and is basically punishing, you know, priests for producing and circulating, you know, say dirty um, paintings or, or dirty poetry or scandalous statues or works of art. Um, as we move into the 19th century and into the early 20th century, especially with the invention of of sexology and of medical, uh, you know, 20th century, 19th, 20th century medical discourse, um, with anthropology, with um, the invention of photography and the invention of film, uh, you know, how are, how, how is erotica shifting? How is pornography as a genre coming into um, its own? And how are the definitions of all these terms and concepts um, changing over time? So really my second book project is looking at different archives of the obscene. It's taking me to 
to, to flea more, excuse me, to flea markets in Mexico city, taking me to interview rare book dealers, um, doing, uh, you know, activist work with LGBTQ archivists and grassroots, um, archival collectives in and around Mexico, um, to sort of think about what types of, of quote unquote, obscene representations of bodies do and do not enter mainstream archives and how can we produce a history of these types of acts um, and and bodies and desires. So, you know, I'm in the early stages of this project, but it's very much conceptually linked to the first book project, but I think moving far beyond in terms of its um, its scope, its chronology and its kind of technical, technical expertise and, and interests uh, around archiving. That sounds like a fascinating project. I wish you the best of luck because I think it's it's very much needed in history and sexuality studies in general. Seth, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for the, the kind invitation and I, I look forward to being in touch as well. Thank you, Seth. And thanks everybody for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Till next time.